first time, we're currently working our way through one of the most action-packed books of the Bible, the book of Acts. It's a book filled with imprisonment and escapes, magic and miracles, voyages at sea, shipwrecks and snake bites, comedy and tragedy. This book has it all. It would make a really good indie film. And as I've said from the, the very beginning, the book of Acts simply tells the story of a bunch of ordinary people like you and me, empowered by the extraordinary spirit of God, turning the world upside down for the glory of Jesus Christ. This morning, that same story continues. If you have a Bible, you can open up to Acts chapter 6. That's where we'll be this morning, first seven verses. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the chairs in the row in front of you. Grab one of those Bibles and open up to this morning's passage. That Bible's yours if you come in and you don't own a Bible or have a translation that's difficult to track with. We got a little bit of ground to cover this morning, so uh, let, me, let me just go ahead and pray and we'll get after it. Father, you're so good. You're so powerful. You're so loving and merciful and gracious to us. You've made a way for us to be brought into your family as adopted sons and daughters of God. How mind-blowing. We only sat with that for but a brief moment and really allowed our minds to soak in that truth. Oh, how it would change us. God, I pray that you would do that this morning, that you would change us by your grace, Holy Spirit, that you would move in power, that you would help us to see the things that you have for us this morning in your word you would give us ears to hear, that you would give us a heart to receive it, that you would soften our hearts, that we would see something of the glory of Jesus Christ this morning, that we would be changed from the inside out, and that we would embrace the honor and the privilege that you've given us to be a part of this great redemptive story as your people, as your church. Jesus, we love you. It's in your name I pray. Amen. When we look at the, the first few chapters of the book of Acts, we've been at this thing now for, what, a couple months? We're almost a quarter of the way through. You certainly see the documentation of the growth of the early New Testament church. You see these statements of the church increasing in number. And thousands were added uh, that day. You see those kind of phrases. But you also see the ways in which the various threats to the church and obstacles to growth are overcome. Uh, we've already seen two of those. You see the threat of persecution from the outside overcome as the apostles empowered by the Holy Spirit stand up to the religious leaders. We've seen them do that on two different occasions now. You see the threat of hypocrisy from the inside overcome as evidenced by the story of Ananias and Sapphira. In this morning's passage, we encounter a third kind of threat to the church, a third obstacle to growth, namely the two-headed threat of division and distraction. And once again, we get a front row seat to see the Spirit help the church overcome advancing the work of the gospel and building Jesus' church as he promised that he would do. Beginning in verse 1, Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So by, by the time we get to Acts chapter 6, the church is widely made up of both Hebrews and Hellenists. Hebrews being those Jewish Christians who had spent most of their lives in Israel, spoke Aramaic, were culturally Jewish, so to speak. 
Hellenists being those Jewish Christians that came from places of exile and entered back into the city of Jerusalem and spoke predominantly Greek. Intended or not, the church is failing to care for the Hellenist widows in need when we get here to Acts chapter 6. The selling of possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Remember that kind of language back in chapters 2 and chapter 4? Well, that mercy ministry, we're told, is benefiting the Hebrews in need, but the Hellenists are being neglected. Now, let me just stop for a second and point out what I think is an obvious truth. This is a pretty good church, right? Can we all just agree to that from the start? Strong in preaching, strong in fellowship, strong in prayer, strong in evangelism. Peter's shadow is healing people. That's a spirit-filled preacher, right? I would love for my shadow to to heal people. You have a, a healthy, vibrant church, and yet they have their challenges. Imperfect in the area of mercy ministry in the midst of the growth. A reminder that there is no perfect church. Even good churches at times fail at some things. There is no perfect church. There is, however, a perfect Jesus, and he's the head of the church, and he promised that he would build his church and that the gates of hell would not prevail against it. In fact, one of the things that I find most encouraging about this morning's passage is that Jesus continues to build his church, verse 1, before the apostles establish a better ministry infrastructure. We'll see that when we get to verses two through six. We'll see the leadership of the church establish better tracks on the ground, a better ministry trellis, you might say, for the vine of of growth to happen. But even with less than perfect tracks on the ground, God is already on the move by his grace. That's really good news, particularly being that we as a church don't have perfect tracks on the ground. We're a five-year-old. We just left for kindergarten last month. Coming back to the particular challenge that the church is facing here in Acts chapter 6, this issue of neglect in the mercy ministry of the church reveals the threat of division, which is really a gospel issue at its core. Paul addresses this kind of threat in Ephesians chapter 2. We talked about this back during the cruciform series on the week where we looked at the facet of the cross known as reconciliation. You may remember this. Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 14, Paul says, For he, Jesus himself, is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility." And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. We've talked about this before, that to the Jew, the the Gentile was considered to be an inferior creature, 
ceremonially unclean, socially outcast. According to the Apostle Paul, that kind of dividing wall of hostility between image bearers of God has been brought down in Jesus Christ, that God's love embraced both Jew and Gentile. Jesus's blood was shed for both Jew and Gentile. Approachability of God was obtained for both Jew and Gentile. That as Donald McLeod says in his book, Christ Crucified, under the cross, the church is a barrier-free household. This is not a demand that God makes. It is a statement of fact, part of the gospel itself, he says. In God's commonwealth, all citizens have equal rights so that as in the Trinity itself, none is greater and none is lesser. That Jesus gave us a, a visual of his reconciling work well before his death. We see it in his pursuit of the Samaritan woman at the well, John Chapter four, a declaration that dividing walls of hostility and hatred have no place in the kingdom of God, that racism, ethnocentrism, all, all other forms of otherness are not merely social issues, they're gospel issues, that it's counterintuitive to the very gospel that we proclaim to erect dividing walls of hostility that Jesus shed his blood to tear down, that in Christ, we, we've been reconciled into a an incredibly diverse forever family. We call it the church. We have the indwelling spirit of God who empowers us to love God and to love other people, including those who are very different from us, putting on display the power of God for salvation, declaring the beauty, the beauty of unity and diversity with the gospel as the glue holding the whole thing together. Coming back to this morning's passage, if, if disunity wins, the gospel message becomes muddied. And so one of the questions begging to be answered here in Acts chapter 6, is the gospel really glue enough to hold the Hebrews and the Hellenists together? Is the gospel powerful enough to break down what appears to be a dividing wall of hostility within the church? But that's not the only threat here in Acts chapter 6. Look at verse 2. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables, that the apostles are, are very much on board with addressing the threat of division within the church, but if they don't handle it the right way, another threat is likely to overcome the church in the process, namely the threat of distraction and burnout. Though the church has grown considerably such that there's no way that the apostles can continue to distribute money and supplies to everyone in need. Can you, can you imagine what it must have been like for the apostles to to try to work through this kind of conundrum. Right? There, there are probably a number of people among the thousands who make up the church at this point in Acts chapter 6 who are looking to the apostles, asking them to personally step in and do something about this issue, asking them to add not a bad thing, but a good thing to their plate. Happens all the time in ministry, right? We know that, that caring for widows is indeed a good thing because Jesus's brother James, who was part of the church in Acts chapter six, would later go on to write James chapter one, verse 27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit widows and orphans in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. In fact, caring for widows was rooted in an Old Testament ethic, going back to the writings of Moses, the book of Deuteronomy. We're talking about a really good ministry opportunity for the apostles to, to personally engage, yet one that would have been a detriment to the church, which I think we could hit pause right here and go, 
Lord Jesus, help us to be so confident in who we are in you that we're even able to say no to good things for the glory of Christ. There's this need for a new ministry plan and structure, one that will both address the neglect of the Hellenist widows and keep the 12 apostles on task, focusing their primary efforts on preaching and prayer. They can't be everything to everyone. Something's got to give, and so we see them delegate. Verse three, therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, who we will appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The, the, the church had seen the impact of the preaching of the gospel, both in the city of Jerusalem and in the surrounding areas, and as a result, everyone agrees for the continued need of that proclamational ministry. Everyone's on the same page there. They're not sold on the idea of less preaching and more programs, and so they choose seven men who have really dynamic personalities, right? No. I know. Seven men who have experienced running a business. No. Not that either. How about seven of the biggest donors to the church? No, we don't see that either. Though, let me be really clear, there's nothing wrong with having a dynamic personality, nothing wrong with having experience running a business, nothing wrong with being a generous giver to the church. All of those things are good things. But the litmus test for leadership development here in the early New Testament church, does your life bear witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ? Which is what the word translated good repute means. It comes from the Greek word martyreo. It's where we get our word martyr one who bears witness, one who testifies to the good news of Jesus. Does your life bear witness to the gospel? Are you full, not of yourself, but of the spirit and of wisdom? The apostles present this litmus test for healthy leadership in, in the church. And we're told in verse five, and what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. We'll talk more about Stephen next week. And Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Pumbaa. Kidding, there is no Pumbaa. That was a joke for all of you, for all of you Lion King lovers out there. But there was a Parmenas and a Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. There has to be something in there for the kids who actually hang out in this auditorium every once in a while, right? We're told that seven are selected from among the Greek-speaking Hellenists to, to attend to the needs of the widows, which is in and of itself an incredible work of God's grace. There's unity happening. What the apostles said pleased the whole gathering. The, the Hebrews and Hellenists are brought together to choose the seven. They, they see this need and they choose people full of faith in the Holy Spirit to help meet that need. So that verse six tells us, these they set before the apostles and they prayed and they laid their hands on them. There's an agreement among the 12 that there's wisdom in the selection of, of the seven here, evidenced in the praying and the laying on of hands, this sort of commissioning for uh, this work of ministry that those seven have been chosen for. And verse seven tells us that the word of God continued as a result to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Just a couple of things here in terms of the growth that we see. Number one, the apostles are careful not to compromise the word ministry of the church, and we're told that the word of God continued to increase. The freeing of the 12 for the ministry of the word and prayer, like it actually worked. 
The, the word of God, which hadn't been forsaken, increased. Another obstacle of the infinite New Testament church overcome by God's great grace. Second, as a result of the word of God increasing, the number of disciples multiplied greatly, we're told, that the church continues to grow despite persecution. The church continues to grow despite compromise morally, corruption on the inside. The church continues to grow despite ministry challenges, despite the not-so-stellar infrastructure that she would once establish moving forward as she grew. Many of the priests, were told, even turned to Jesus. This is a new development, right? We're talking about thousands of lower-ranked priests, uh, a little more impoverished than those making up the high priestly family, likely attracted to the charity and generosity displayed by the early New Testament church, not to mention the fact that the church is actually embodying the caring priestly heart that God had called Israel to going back to the writings of Moses. Here's something mind-blowing to think about. Many of these very priests had heard the gospel message numerous times before. As Peter and John and the other apostles preached the gospel everywhere they went, right? Going back to the very last verse of chapter 5, we're told day by day entering the temple and homes, they never stopped proclaiming the gospel. Let that be an encouragement to those of you who have shared the gospel with loved ones before who have yet to receive it as good news, doesn't mean that God might not awaken some hearts in the, in the days, weeks, and months to come with respect to those loved ones. Maybe the very next time that they hear the proclamation of the gospel, just like the priests here in Acts chapter 6. Let's never quit on expecting God to save mightily. The church in the midst of growth encounters growing pains. They have to adapt to the needs established by this new situation with new structures God raises up leaders to meet those needs as the, the ministry extends beyond those who are called primarily to preach. And as a result, unity and diversity is maintained, and the church continues to keep her eyes on the mission she's been called to in bearing witness to the beauty of the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's an incredible passage, brief as it might be. You might ask, well, what are we to glean from this? Like, what, What's in this passage for us as a continuation of the Acts church? What, what do we take away from a passage like this? I'll give you a few things, what we might call marks of a healthy church. And this is not an exhaustive list. There are many more marks, many more indicators of a healthy church. But this is just based on this morning's seven verses. I'll give you five in no particular order. Number one, a healthy church ministers in both word and deed. That on the one hand, the, the ministry of the word is critical to the church's mission I mean, think about it. Satan had failed in his first two tactics, persecution from the outside and moral corruption from the inside. What's the next best go-to if you're the devil of hell? How about distracting the apostles with good things that are not primary to their calling, causing them to neglect their responsibilities to pray and preach the gospel? Do that, and not only is sound doctrine abandoned, but the church is left with little defense against false teaching which the Apostle Paul addresses as a significant issue in a number of his New Testament writings. It's an issue that Jesus himself addresses in his letters to the seven churches in Revelation chapters two and three. On a side note, I think it's worth asking a question when we look at a passage like this. How might the devil attempt to distract a church like ours from our mission? What, what might that look like? I don't know about you, but I'm 
more and more increasingly convinced that when you consider the devil's three-pronged attack here in the early chapters of the book of Acts, persecution, corruption, and distraction, I would argue that distraction might be the, the greatest tactic of the enemy in our context. I mean, how easy it is to be. I don't know about you, but I like being distracted because I don't have to look at what's under the hood of my heart when I'm distracted. I don't have to think about all of the things that are broken in this world that surrounds me when I'm distracted. And so it's really easy to run to distraction. If you don't believe this is a distracted culture, just go back and listen to the Crosspoint Together sermon series that we did about a year ago where we talked about the challenges of living in perhaps the most contested space the world has ever known, the perfect cultural cocktail of moralism and suburbanism vying for our attention, calling us away from the gospel. Persecution, corruption, distraction. Satan will do whatever it takes to to derail the church. Coming back to Acts chapter six, the ministry of the word and prayer are critical in the life of a healthy church, such that the focus on this passage is just as much about protecting the pulpit ministry of the church and the prayer ministry of the church as it is focusing on the mercy ministry of the church. Yet, on the other hand, the meeting of visible needs in the community is not dismissed. It's, it's embraced that just as the preaching and prayer ministry of the church has her appointed leaders, so does the mercy ministry of the church have her appointed leaders. It's significant enough to have a leadership team. That there's this healthy awareness that the gospel is to be both declared and displayed. If we, if we only declare the gospel, but we don't display it with our lives, then people will question whether our message has any impact on everyday living. And if we only display the gospel with our lives, but don't declare the gospel, then people will never know that it's Jesus that actually compels us to live the way we do. We need a word and a deed ministry as a church. And so my prayer is, may we be known as a church that ministers both in word and in deed, proclaiming the gospel with both our lips and our lives. Number two, a healthy church equips and empowers the saints for the work of ministry. That throughout the first few chapters of the book of Acts, we see We see the apostles carrying a great deal of the ministerial load. There's a point going back a couple chapters ago where people are bringing the proceeds of the selling of their their land and homes and bringing it to the feet of the apostles, that the apostles have a role in the mercy ministry of the church. But they they reach a tipping point here in Acts chapter 6 where taking on any more would be to the detriment of the ministry of prayer and, and preaching, that for us, as a, as a church planter who's now been, I think I'm a fifth church plant now over the course of the last decade or so, that there is this sense in which people have to wear several hats when you're getting a church off of the ground in the beginning of a planting initiative. But there comes a point where more focused concentration on areas of gifting and calling are critical, which requires the, the whole body of Christ to get involved in the work of ministry to make that happen, that God, God calls different people to different ministries, and in doing so, he frees us all from carrying all of the load such that we're all able to focus on things that he's uniquely calling us to. It requires a few things. It requires discovery, asking the question, where do you sense God calling you to serve if you haven't sorted that out yet? And, and that includes not just the context of the church gathered, but also when we leave this place 
Have you discovered your part in the work of ministry as we both gather in this place and then scatter into community groups, neighborhoods, and workplaces all around us? If not, let's figure that out. Let's bat that around and and see what God might do in that conversation. But it's not just about discovering, it's about developing, which brings up the question, do you sense that you need developing, that you need equipping, particularly as it pertains to the ministry to which God has called you or is calling you? If so, is that something that the staff and eldership of the church can help you with? Is that something your community group can rally around you to support you in? Is that something that a an equipping-focused gospel alliance would, would help to, to create in terms of that developing and equipping piece. And then delegating, letting go, so that other people might take on some of those roles for the flourishing of the church. My prayer is that the work of ministry that's before us would be owned not by the few, but by the many. And, and here's the beautiful thing. I think that's already happening in a number of ways. I'm incredibly encouraged as I look out on the servant-hearted landscape of our church. And that's not just when we gather, but when we do scatter, just listening to stories of God at work both in and through you. And so let me just say thank you for engaging the needs that you see around you, both when we come into this place and when we leave this place. My prayer is that we would be willing to continue to lead and to delegate and to serve where we see need. Number three, A healthy church appoints ministry leaders for the right reasons, not based on ultimately dynamic personality or popularity or tenure, not based on success in the business world or donor contributions. Coming back to this morning's passage, the litmus test for leadership development in the early New Testament church, do your lips in your life bear witness to the gospel? Are you desperate for and dependent upon the Spirit's leading and guidance and empowering? Is there a humility about you where there's a leaning on the Holy Spirit? Does your life give evidence to the wisdom that comes in abiding in Christ? Here's what amazes me. The church in Acts chapter 6, I think we could all agree, is in the midst of a significant growth spurt, right? such that it would have made perfect sense to many in the church to just plug holes. Like, can anybody lead a community group? We just need warm bodies with blood flowing through your veins. Like, if that's you, we need you to lead a community group right now. It would have been so easy to say that in this moment, would it not? Thousands of people coming to Jesus. Even priests with really good religious backgrounds. Maybe, Maybe they did plug people into the various teams, ministerially speaking, but that's not what they did uh, with those responsible for leading those teams. And so my prayer with this mark of a healthy church is may the leaders of our church be and continue to be spirit-filled, wisdom-filled, faith-filled witnesses to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, may it be so. Number four, a healthy church seeks unity and diversity as an embodiment of the gospel. That here in Acts chapter 6, we see the church listening to those feeling neglected. We see the church working hard toward reconciliation between diverse groups of people who have been brought together under the banner of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We see the church empowering and appointing people of differing backgrounds into roles of leadership, both Hebrews and Hellenists on the team, declaring the the beauty of unity and diversity with the gospel as the glue holding it together. That looking at this passage 
Is the gospel really glue enough to hold the Hebrews and the Hellenists together? Is the gospel really powerful enough to break down what appear to be some dividing walls of hostility within the church? And the answer is yes and amen. And so my prayer for our church with respect to this mark of a healthy church is may we never cease to show the world the glue of the gospel. And then lastly, and this is maybe one of the hardest ones, a healthy church embraces change when needed. That here in Acts chapter 6, the church is forced to adapt and change, right? Facing division, distraction, potential burnout with creative new ministry structures. I mean, let's be honest. Change is most always painful, is it not? Some of you guys, you're like, yeah, I know because I've felt it when I walk in this room and somebody's sitting in my chair. Like, <laughs> do they not know? New visitor Joe, new visitor Jane, are you not aware that I've been sitting in that chair for months, maybe even years at this point? We need to have a conversation or I'm at least gonna get here 10 minutes earlier so that I can hijack my seat, then hijack. Change is hard, even the smallest change. It takes sacrifice. Yet at times, it's incredibly necessary to move the church forward. That there's some things that are true of us right now that might not always be true of us. We might not always be the same size that we are now. And so if you come in, you go, I love this church because at the size that we are now, it's easy to know people, to be known by other people. It's easy to build community it makes me feel in a good way, a little bit uncomfortable because I can't be a wallflower. God may actually, by his grace, create growth such that that might not always be true. And what will you do when that happens, when that change comes to, to be reality? We might not always have the same serving needs that we have now as we continue to grow, as the the ministry trellis on which the vine is intended to grow, the ministry infrastructure continues to change as we adapt, as we move forward as a church. And so my prayer is, if it's for the sake of the gospel, not just for any reason, but if it's for the sake of the gospel, may we not fight and resist change, but embrace it for the glory of Jesus Christ. Let me just, let me just close with this and say, if you're in this room this morning, you're not a Christian, here's my hope. My hope is that as you spend time with us as a church, that your hearing and seeing brings you to faith and repentance. Maybe even like the priests in this morning's passage, that it's quite possible to have some Protestant moralists in the room who are trusting in their own efforts and good works to impress God in an attempt to try to cause God to love them. You see, the priests in this morning's passage relinquishing their efforts and turning to Jesus Christ in hope for salvation. So my prayer, wherever you come from in terms of your background, is that you would hear the proclamation of Jesus living the, the perfect sinless life that you could never live, that you would hear the proclamation of Jesus dying the sinner's death, that you deserve to die in your place, taking your sin upon himself, that you would hear the proclamation of Jesus rising from the grave in triumph over Satan, sin, and death, and that in support of that declaration of the gospel, that you would see this church displaying the sufficiency and supreme worth of Jesus Christ, even in the midst of those dark nights of the soul going back to last week and that you would turn to Jesus, receiving salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Jesus Christ alone. And if you are a Christian, 
The, the church is not called to an easy task, but what we have been called to is an incredible honor and a privilege. And here's the good news. When, when you see those marks of a healthy church, it's not that a healthy church uh, ministers in both word and deed so that God might love them. It's not that a healthy church equips and empowers the saints for the work of ministry so that God might love them. It's not that a healthy church appoints ministry leaders for the right reasons so that God will look down and be impressed and might love them. It's not that a healthy church seeks unity and diversity as an embodiment of the gospel so that God might love them. It's not that a healthy church embraces change when needed so that God might look down and be impressed and love them. The beauty of the honor and privilege that we've been called to is that it's in response to grace. We've been saved by grace alone, Jesus alone. Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And as a result, we get the honor and privilege of putting that gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone, on display. We get to, as I've said before, we get to live in the low-altitude grit of a particularized community of disciples, putting a big God and a big gospel on display Spending and being spent for the glory of Jesus Christ, our worthy Savior and King. In just a moment, we're going to sing to him. We're going to receive communion in, in celebration of him, who he is and what he's done. If you're a Christian, that meal is for you. We take the bread here, dip it in the cup, the bread representing the broken body of Jesus, the cup representing his shed blood. The communion tables will be open for the remainder of this service. So when you're ready, you can come and receive of the elements there will be people available to pray with and for you if you want to take advantage of that this morning, Christian and non-Christian alike. And then let's sing to this worthy king who has rescued us into this incredible story, given us incredible meaning to be a part of his story of redemption as his bride, as his church. 